0: Hello and welcome to The Premise.
1: Bienvenidos, mi amigos.
0: I'm Jennifer Thompson.
1: And I'm Chad Thompson.
0: And this is, what, season three? Season three. Wow. We are in season three of getting to the story behind the storyteller. Yeah. Yeah. That's what we do. That's what we do here on The Premise.
1: So sit back, relax. Listen. Listen to your eight tracks. I dig you like an old soul record.
0: <laughs> Enjoy a cup of tea, a glass of wine, shot, you know, whatever.
1: And you do you.
0: You do you, we'll do us.
1: No judgment here.
0: <laughs> we'll do us. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. We gotta hold these close, right? Yeah, we hold close and talk sultry into the mic. Um, Laura, this is such a pleasure. Oh, thank you. I'm so glad to be here with you. I'm glad to be here. I'm so proud of this book. I didn't write it, but I'm so proud of you. <laughs> yeah, it's just so beautiful, so beautifully written. It moved me. I cried from page, like, 147 till the end. Sorry. I just No, it was, like bec- like, beautiful tears. Like, I just felt so happy and warm and, like, It just moved me. Even though I know you and I knew the story and I'd heard pieces in the beginning, I just wasn't ready for like the impact of this book. And I know that, I hope a lot of people read it because I know it's going to impact a lot of lives. It's an important story. Thank you. I didn't know my birth father when I met Laura. And I thought, oh my God, maybe it's possible. I can find my birth father. And, and pretty soon after I found him on Ancestry DNA.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> right? You were one of the first to yeah. be, that t- told me the book or the story made yeah. a difference for you. Yeah, and I just thought, you know, this is such
0: a story for children who don't know their birth parents, but a birth mama, whoo, ooh. So let me read your bio. I'm going to try and not drop things. Okay, (laughs) a lot of things not to drop. Laura L. Ingle, originally from Mississippi, migrated to San Diego more than 50 years ago. She is married with six grown children and 10 cherished grandchildren. Her first memoir, You'll Forget This Ever Happened, Secrets, Shame, and Adoption in the 1960s, is the story of a secret Laura had planned to take to her grave. She has had three essays from her memoir published in Shaking the Tree Anthologies. Two of those essays were performed live on stage in San Diego. Laura is now dabbling in playwriting and has had a skit performed on stage as well as a monologue from her memoir. That's exciting. Laura serves as president of the San Diego Memoir Writers Association and damn, does she do a fantastic (laughs) job. I'm just gonna say you rock. Oh my gosh, we appreciate you you so much. She is a member of San Diego Writers Inc., the San Diego Writers and Editors, Editors Guild, and if that's not enough, International Women Writers Guild. You do a lot. In spring 2019, Danny Shapiro interviewed Laura for her Family Secrets podcast, that, and thousands of people listened to the episode, Secret Son. This is now, of course, the book. You can visit Laura on her website, and please follow her blog and follow her on social. Laura L. Ingle. Dot com.
2: Thank you, Jennifer. You're
0: welcome. <laughs> nice bio. Thank you. Here it is. I, I want to ask, how many people have not read the book? Not yet. Okay, wow. quite a few. Get ready. Get ready. So <laughs> there might be some spoilers, but well, here's the beautiful thing about this particular book, is it doesn't matter if you know the end, right? You know the end. Yeah. It's the story well, that matters. Yeah, you still cry. It doesn't matter. It's so beautiful. When I first met you, you told a story of
2: how you started sort of writing. Was that before you found Jamie? Yes. Um, After I retired, one of my goals after retiring was to take classes that I never had time to take when I was working. And one of the classes that I took was with one of my friends who's here tonight, Jill. She's in the book. And we went to an Artist's Way class, and it was at Writers Inc. It was my first introduction to Writers Inc. And during that class, I started journaling constantly because one of the things you do in that class is three pages every day longhand. And it sounds so horrible, but you get to the point where if you miss a day, you wanna shoot yourself because you just get, it's a habit. And once you start this habit, all kinds of strange things start happening. Um, I I know a lot of people may not believe in manifesting, but I truly believe that writing my list every day in my journal helped me to manifest what eventually happened. I had a secret. My uh, first son was born in an unwed mother's home and I had been forced to give him up for adoption. And I never told anyone. Gene knew, my husband knew, but I just didn't talk about it. Well, I started writing about it for the first time in that class. And Jill would sit right next to me and I'd be writing and one <laughs> of the things at the top of the list was always find Jamie. And I knew she was probably thinking, who the hell is Jamie? <laughs> but I'd never told anybody any of my dear friends because I felt I felt like I'd done such a terrible thing and what would people think of me? Because in my heart it had been such a terrible thing. So Going forward, I had started writing little stories because, in the artist's way, you know, she encourages you to be creative and do your your thing, and that was always my thing to write. So I started writing stories, and I thought I'm going to make like a um, memoir type thing and do like beads on a string kind of thing with me, these little family stories. But I was not going to write about 1967.
1: <laughs> I was going to leave that year
2: out. So what happened was. I wrote in there every day, find Jamie. And sure enough, I finally got the courage to tell Jean, uh, Jill who Jamie was. And she reacted in a way that surprised me. She wasn't horrified. If anything, she was like, I'm so sorry, How, can I help you? And I thought, why am I still thinking it's 1967? So I went, I, you know, I didn't tell anyone else, but it just, it just relieved me just to even tell one person. Well, sure enough, six months later, my son found me on Ancestry.com DNA, and wow. It was instead of me finding Jamie, he found me. (laughs) So when you manifest, it might be a little different (laughs) than what you're thinking you're manifesting for, but it's the same end result. So um, that's what I was writing, a little family history, I had no idea, even when he found me that I'd ever write this story because I never spoke of it. Why would I write it and put it out in the world? And as time went on, I realized how much healthier I felt because I was sharing the secret. And it it renewed my faith in mankind because everyone was so kind. Mm -hmm. And how can we help, you know, why didn't you tell me? And it was just beautiful. And I thought, wow, I've been living in this dark place because I couldn't talk. And you want to hear something really weird, and a lot of you know it if you read the book. When I first spoke about it, I started having ab- abdominal pains, like labor pains, wow. that lasted a month. And that whole month I was so happy because he was in my life and we were, it was beautiful. We got along, he flew out here four days later, It was a beautiful reunion. And I didn't even realize that's not always the case. I didn't. I thought, oh, this is how it always is. But I guess it's not. But we were very lucky. And when I was sitting outside talking to Gene one day, I said, I was telling about my little stories and he said, you know what your story really is? It's this story. And I said, oh, no, I can't write about that. And he (laughs) said, why don't you just write it for yourself? Mm. Smart. And he was right. <laughs> writing is so healing. Saint yeah. Jean. And the more I wrote, <laughs> in my reading critique, they call Gene St. Jean. Now, oh. I know the Finches and my Gene's uh, old friends out there might not call him St. Jean, <laughs> 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 But my writing group does. <laughs> but it, it was so wonderful because once I got past that fear of writing about it, oh my God, the memories just... You know i mean it was like all these things i pushed down started bubbling up in the middle of the night mm. i would say gene i just remembered the girls faces so and so and so and so and i remember this and you know he'd say write it down write it down because you'll forget it you know which is true and this went on for months just kind of laying the foundation well then i thought okay if i write this story how do I put it together mm. so that's what got me back to writers inc where i went to memoir 101 and that's how I started writing my story. And if it wasn't for the people in my writing group, my reading critique, which we call ourselves the Righteous Sisters, and if it, you know, W-R-I-T. If it hadn't been for the Righteous Sisters helping me along, um, ended up writing five drafts, mm. uh, rewriting because of Tracy here, because she's such a good editor and she told me part two has to go. And Jean was like, that's my favorite part. I go, that's because you're in it and it's true. <laughs> it's like my my family was my family here mm-hmm. was in it. And so I I did what Tracy told me to. I dropped 20,000 words <laughs> and I rewrote it and she was so right. It made the story so much better. So that's how I started writing. What a journey. <laughs> and how much time passed
0: from that first moment where the first writers ink class to the second. We decided okay this it was is an, a year about a, it was a year just a mm-hmm. year okay
1: mm-hmm.
0: and how many
2: years from that, uh, that time to today like see that was in 2017 okay and I thought I would just write this first draft <laughs> some <laughs> publisher would say yes this is beautiful story <laughs> and Gene thought so too he said just don't write another one just send that because it took so much time to write one <laughs> and I said no tracy and marnie and all these instructors and coaches i had said rewrite it mm. and every time you rewrite your story it's like everything we do in life mm. first time you do anything it's yeah even if you do a good job then you redo it and it's like wow that's so much better and, <laughs> and you get over the hatred of having to rewrite it you know at first you just are like i can't do this anymore mm. you start to hate your story because you've rewritten it so much But then when it's all said and done, it's a much better story and it's worth every rewrite. Um, My son, uh, Ray, had actually um, read the first two drafts and he said the same thing, just send it in now. And I was (laughs) like, no, no. So it actually took me from 2017 to 2021 to have it to a point that I felt it was worth Mm -hmm. submitting to a publisher. did you have that moment where you were like, "Okay, it's ready"? Like, did you feel yes, it? Yes. Yes. Tell us about that. Um, I had written it so many times, and I read the whole entire thing for the final time. In uh, we'd gone through COVID and all that. And it was twenty-seven, uh, nineteen, and I mean, I'm sorry, it was twenty twenty-one. And I just had this feeling like, I cannot write this another time. You can only make it so good, mm-hmm. or you're really gonna just take yourself right out of it. You know, I wanted it to be me telling you the story. I always felt like, you know me, all of you in this room know I love to talk. And I, I thought, I'm writing it just like I'm telling you, because that's the only way I knew how to write it. And I didn't use big words, and I didn't you know, try to be somebody I couldn't be these wonderful authors that i read all the time i thought i'll never be that i have to just do it my way so that's pretty much it i have to say you know in the beginning we're there with
0: teenage laura you captured the essence of of you at that time and i can't imagine what that must have been like i, I imagine in the beginning you're writing about her mm-hmm. Was there a point where you were writing, where you became her in the writing, that you were back in that place? Yes,
2: yes, this is so weird. At first I thought, how can I remember all this? And I looked at a lot of old photos. Mm. I read old diary Mm. uh, excerpts that I had written. And I'd, I'd look at those photos and I could remember what was going on at that time. And because it was such a traumatic time, the way it happened, I had pushed a lot of it down, but as soon as I started thinking about it, and this is kind of funny, I watched my, um, my two of my oldest granddaughters. They were like 17 or something when I first started writing, and I would watch them and I'd think, "Girls are still the same as they used to be. <laughs> they still love to do the same things me and my girlfriends love to do. And they were silly, and I remember we had been just like that, so carefree, and you know, I was just a typical high school senior like everyone and i was a little girl really i thought i was so grown up but all of my friends were like that and the girls in the home were like that we were just a bunch of teenagers who happened to have gotten in trouble but we were made to feel that we had done something so terrible Mm -hmm. that it was almost criminal Mm -hmm. but i could remember when i would look at those photos i remember black and white photos. I'd remember the color of the dresses. Mm. I would remember fixing my hair. Wow. I remembered feeling like a nerd because I was always kind of nerdy and it was just amazing. I, I would go outside sometimes after writing for hours mm. and I would just sit there in the deck and look up at the sky and feel like I was still that girl because I was.
1: Mm.
2: I had gray hair, but I was still that girl. She was inside of me. Yeah, well, you did such a beautiful
0: job of bringing her back. Thank you. And thank you. Thank you so much. I, he is Saint Jean because <laughs> I know that writing your memoir is hard. And a lot of people in this room know exactly what we're talking about. And it's hard to sort of separate yourself from that when you go into that pain. Mm-hmm. It's so so inside of you and then you have to like make dinner and be your normal self right yes. and then oh suddenly you're emotional yes. right so I'm guessing Saint Jean experienced
2: a little bit of that, <laughs> he did. that did you ever think why am I doing this did yes that... <laughs> I thought that all the time <laughs> um, I, w- I would write for hours and hours because I loved it once I would get in that it was like a, a it was like almost a, a drug Hmm. Once I would sit down at the computer and start writing, I couldn't stop. I found myself so entrenched in what I was doing that, you know, it'd be like, you know, Jean would say, honey, what's for <laughs> you dinner? You need to
0: eat. Oh. And i go, I don't care. <laughs> Whatever,
2: you know, because I didn't. I didn't care about anything. I would tell people I couldn't go anywhere because I wanted to be writing that day. Hmm. And if you don't write, you don't understand that. It's like, it was like a... It was like a job, but at the same time, it was a job that I wanted to do so badly, and I wanted to be the best I could be, and I loved it. It was a passion after a while, and, yeah. and then when I had to go on vacation a few times, I was almost sick that I couldn't be writing my story. You know, mm-hmm. I was always journaling, but it was just, it was like an addiction. It really mm-hmm. was, and everything got shoved to the side. Like, right now, my house is so bad, because <laughs> its it's like, you know, I get the stuff done, but it's not like it should be, because I don't care. All I wanna do is get this book out of me and and write it over and over and over. And I guess that's normal, I guess, but... Do you have another book in you? Uh Oh, Oh, God. (laughs) I don't know if I'll still be married if I write another
0: book. We'll ask St. Jean later.
2: (laughs) No, I, I do think sometimes of doing a couple of things. I've taken some playwriting classes. I loved writing monologues. And I also love um, the little stories that I write that I do from photos in a class I'm taking. I've always thought they, they, could, they could be a, a memoir in that form. Mm. But as far as I admire fiction writers, I don't think I could, I don't know. I should never say I don't think I could do something. Never I, say never. Maybe I could. <laughs> but I, I don't know right now what the next thing is. This has taken a lot. <laughs> I remember you saying one time that you, you weren't a writer.
0: At what point did you realize, oh, hey, I'm a writer?
2: Well, the first time I went to um, the writing class, the memoir class, I came home and I said to Gene, I'm not going back. <laughs> and he goes, why? You were so excited about this class. And I said, because it's, there's real writers in there. And he goes, okay, they started somewhere. And I go, no, no, they're real writers. He goes, you're a writer, what are you doing all the time? And I go, I know, but it's not the same. They've written books. And he said, Laura, what do you tell the kids? Don't give up, go another time, try it out. And I thought, you know, the teacher was Marnie and she just, I don't know, she didn't seem like, I felt like I was needy when I was around her because I was like, "Mm." And, and I thought she probably hates me. (laughs) And so I went to the second class, and she was so nice. (laughs) And she's, oh, you're back, you know. And I thought, oh, maybe she doesn't hate me. And then Jean was right. I fell in love with the writers. I felt like I had met my tribe. Mm. And it was just the most marvelous feeling because they all understood where I was coming from. And... I love my other friends, but sometimes I think they might have thought I was crazy because I I was always saying, I'm writing, (laughs) you know, okay, where is it? (laughs) (laughs) What are you producing? Nothing. So, yeah, I loved it. And I became a writer. (laughs) Absolutely.
0: Absolutely. I want to dive into the book and bring us to the place where, well, actually, let's take a step back. One of the things that I found really fascinating was this idea that you couldn't be pregnant. Like Lucille Ball, for example, wasn't allowed to be pregnant on camera. She had to hide her belly or they couldn't film. Teachers in, in your book, I discovered that teachers couldn't teach. Mm-hmm. They would have to, you would have substitute teachers while they were pregnant. It was like the stigmatism, like women do this beautiful thing and bring everyone into the world and yet hide it. Mm-hmm. Talk about that time and that experience of just being sent to a home because
2: you've done this terrible thing. Well, some of you have read in my book or, have, or know the story. Um, I had a boyfriend who was off and on that last six months before I got pregnant. And he had met someone else, but he would still come visit me. And um, he had been my boyfriend for a couple of years. And so I was in love with him. And I pretended like I didn't care, but it, I did care. I felt like I had been, you know, shunned. And it was my last year of high school, and I started off the year, and I started feeling, you know, like something was wrong. And I, you know, when you're back then, we did not have birth control just readily given to us at all. You had to search for it. You had, to, and women were not given any birth control, which a lot of people don't understand today. It was like a young woman like me, I could not have gone to the doctor and said, Can I have the pill? Because they would not even give you the pill unless you were married and over 18. Mm. And your husband had to do, had to sign for everything back then. You couldn't get a, a A credit account you couldn't buy anything on credit without your husband approving I mean it was just a different world It's very archaic well although we didn't have birth control and we were expected to be good girls which I thought I was a good girl um, we still were not allowed to get pregnant (laughs) nobody talked about birth control but god you don't get pregnant hello so that's pretty much the kind of weird world it was back then and then we had all this, you know, free love stuff happening. The 60s was, you know, rock and roll, sex and rock and roll. And but at the same time, you got to be a good girl. Well, when I got pregnant, I was scared to death because I knew girls that had gotten, you know, pregnant during school. And I knew either they got married and it was okay. If they got married, made it okay, mm. even though it was a horrible marriage usually, and they were way too young to be getting married or um, they had just gone away and you never hear anymore. They just disappeared.
0: They went so, to Grandma's
2: house. Yes, a lot of them <laughs> went to Grandma's house and to Aunt Susie's house or whatever, and way far away. Well, so finally, my, I realized my boyfriend, is, he's joining the army. He prefers Vietnam to being my husband or a father. And um, I was devastated. My mother finally, I kept it a secret until my mother finally corners me and asks me. And I said, I think I am. And she was like, you think? But I wasn't sure. I still wasn't sure. And so she takes me to the doctor. Yes, I am. He was very cruel. Our family doctor Mm. acted like, you know, he barely would look at me afterward while he was telling my mother, yes, she is. But that was normal back then. I was just telling someone the other day, and he said, what kind of jerk would treat you like that? I said, everyone, (laughs) you know, back then it was normal to be treated that way if you Mm -hmm. did this bad thing.
1: Yeah.
2: So my daddy um, and his minister had a long talk and the minister told him about an unwed mother's home. The unwed mother's home was in New Orleans. And my mother took me aside and said, if you go and have the baby there, then you can bring it back and I'll take care of it. And so I honestly thought as, I'm drive- as we're driving to New Orleans, that's what's gonna happen. Do you think she believed it at that moment when she said that to you, that she believed she would do that? I do think she would have done it. But now I think my father was right when he said, your mother cannot raise this baby. There was already four of us. My mother already had a lot of issues. Mm-hmm. Um, my mother was depressed all the time and the last thing she really needed was baby especially my baby and daddy had said you know you would be you would be hard for you to let your mother raise your child because he knew me and he said it would be a constant fighting and arguing we already had a terrible relationship by that point so he tells me this though at the home Mm. when we drove up to that place in new orleans you got to remember i was A teenager and i'm still this kind of this way i'm always thinking it's going to be lovely you know and it's going to be beautiful rose colored glasses yes exactly (laughs) rose colored glasses but it wasn't it was a it was a um institutional looking red building and it was brick and it was squat and ugly and two-story and looked like an office building and was shabby grounds around it and sidewalks were all broken up and I remember getting out of the car and just being petrified mm-hmm. because I thought they won't leave me here I just thought they won't do this i would never lived away from home and I was a very naive 17 year old in some ways and I kept thinking some knight in shining armor is going to come jumping up and saying you don't have to do this I will take care of you either it was going to be my boyfriend was going to all of a sudden miraculously change his mind or my daddy was going to change his mind Nobody changed their mind. So it was a, it was pretty terrifying. And one of the best things of it, though, was that it opened my eyes to so many different kinds of people and um, cultures that I wouldn't have been around if I'd been home. And, you know, they did feed us well. <laughs> and we did have a little bit of freedom, but at the same time, it was like being in prison. It was actually, in some ways, like being in prison and we were made to feel like we'd really screwed up our lives. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: I felt like my life was over, and um, I just, I didn't think I'd ever be able to find somebody who loved me if they knew the truth about me, and I couldn't even imagine leaving my child. I -hmm. I could not, I kept thinking till the bitter end, something good was gonna happen, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and it never did.
0: Well, it did eventually.
2: Yeah, it did eventually.
0: So you leave the home, you do end up leaving your baby, you're, can, you convince yourself the whole time you're there, I'm gonna, I'm gonna figure it out, I'm gonna take him home with me. I've named him Jamie, I'm gonna t- I know it's a boy, I'm gonna take him home. And that doesn't happen. And then there's this moment where you talk your brother into driving you back. Would you mind reading us a piece from your book right now about that moment? I would love to.
2: Thank you. I'm gonna have to come up here though.
0: Do you mind shutting the back door so we don't get all of the background noise in our recording? Thank you, St. Jean.
2: <laughs> do you need some water? Yes, I do. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. I talk a lot, but um, I've been really talking a lot lately. <laughs> Actually, I'll let you have my... Some of you know this story. Some of you know this story. My reading critique. The righteous sisters have gone over it so many times; they're going to fall asleep. <laughs> Let me tell you a little bit what's Wait happening a minute. here. Are all the righteous sisters here?
0: Can you all stand raise up? your
2: hands, righteous sisters? Yeah, let's
0: see you. Yes. Yay! That's so cool. You're here.
2: All right. Reading critique is the formal way of. <laughs> I like righteous sisters better. Okay. This. What's happening here is this is. Uh, Three weeks after I go home from the home, I kind of had a breakdown when I first got home and I was so depressed and so messed up and all I could think of was my son because while I was at the home, I worked in the nursery and I got to know all the babies and all I could think of was how my son was still, he was in that bassinet and he was probably still there but if maybe he had been adopted Maybe, just maybe. But what if he was laying there? And I used to always worry, do these babies, because they get to know you after a while. You know, you'd come to pick them up and their little faces would light up. Mm. And I thought, what happens afterward? They leave there. It's another, you know, loss. So I was so worried about him. So I finally, one day, I get brave enough, because I was not allowed to go back to New Orleans. I get brave enough to ask my brother, who's... 15 years younger than me i said i mean 15 i'm sorry months younger than me and he had a driver he was a baby (laughs) i asked him i said billy will you take me to new orleans now billy and i have never talked about what happened Hmm. never you know never was that conversation never happened but he knew what happened over there and he said no well I begged him, I begged him and begged him. I was like, please take me, and finally he gave in. So I'm not gonna read you the drive over to New Orleans, but I'm gonna start here when, um, I'll just start while we're going over to New Orleans. The reasons we were on this trip to New Orleans never entered our conversation. When I had pleaded with him that I desperately needed a ride, I had not said why, and he never asked. Once there, I directed Billy to park on the side street. A stew of emotions flooded through me, an odd mix of joy, along with dread and trepidation. The month before, these gnarled old oaks had sheltered us as I'd walked these streets with my unwed sisters, all in various stages of pregnancy, all with different stories, yet the same old story to tell. We had lived together, worked together, laughed and cried together, and had one by one given up our babies in this red brick building. Okay, wait here, Billy. Bill nodded, scanning the building and lighting a cigarette, seriously relieved that he didn't have to go inside. Mm -hmm. Remembering how Mm -hmm. some of the babies seemed to wait longer before they were adopted had troubled me for weeks. Those babies grew fast, their eyes lighting up when we reached for them, They recognized us and I worried about whether they remembered us and missed us when they were handed over to their new parents. I knew the average age for adoption had been between six to 10 weeks. Jamie was only three weeks. I longed to see him, but I also hoped that he had been adopted and wasn't there. That Sunday afternoon was a scorcher with jungle level humidity. My blouse stuck to my back, dripping from the ride in the unair conditioned car. The cool, dark lobby was empty and silent, and goosebumps covered my arms as I pushed open the front door. Wasting no time, I hurried straight through into the narrow hallway leading to the nursery. Hesitating at the viewing window, my heart in my throat, I forced myself to look in. The nursery was dim and seemed empty. Only a couple of bassinets were visible as I peered through the glass. My eyes adjusted to the dark, and I held my breath. He's not here. Was he already adopted? Deli rounded the corner. When she saw me, her dark eyebrows shot right up to her hairline and her face split into a shimmering smile of surprise. I grinned and waved enthusiastically, hurrying over to unlock the door. She peered down the hall, grabbed my arm, and drew me into the nursery. Those huge liquid eyes so close to mine, I could have counted each dense eyelash. Laura, look at you. I never got to say goodbye, Deli. My daddy and mama came for me. Hush, hush, honey, I understand. It's so good to see you, Laura. She looked behind me, worry creasing her forehead. Is he here? I gulped. I have to see Jamie, please, I begged. He's here. He's such a good baby. You wash up. I'll get him for you. And she scurried away. I knew the drill. My hands trembled as I scrubbed my hands and arms hard all the way up to my elbows. I grabbed a sterilized smock and smiled as I wrapped it over my clothes. Deli shut the blinds over the observation window, glancing out first to be sure no one stood there. She headed to the rear of the nursery, and I followed. My shoulders relaxed. I remembered so well the familiar peaceful grunts and baby noises along with the white sound serenity that filled this room. Inhaling the familiar scent of sterilized cotton sheets and blankets along with the milky smell of formula, I sighed. I stopped in my tracks. There stood Deli with Jamie. Oh, he was wrapped snugly like a cocoon. My heart ramped up to a frantic pounding and the familiar solid lump blocked my throat. Leading me to the rockers, she gently placed my son in my arms. Hot tears wet my cheeks as the weight of that precious bundle warmed my body and healed my aching chest. I audibly exhaled. What was this? He had changed. He was heavier, his oval face had filled out, and the fuzzy down on his baby head was thinner. I studied his closed eyes, feather-soft eyelashes set flat against his baby cheeks. Breathing in the soft, clean scent of him. His tiny fingers wrapped around my own and held tight. His body fit my arms perfectly as I rocked him. Surges of fierce love flooding through me. I wanted to feel this way always. (laughs) Deli, is he okay? I swallowed and gently tickled his warm toes. He's full, honey. Already took five ounces. Such a good eater and a good sleeper too. Your boy's one of them no trouble babies, sugar. Don't you worry, he's a fine, healthy boy. He lets you know when he's hungry, all right, (laughs) woo-ee. Deli chuckled. I have no idea how long I held him. After a while, I was aware of the tension, signaling Deli's anxiety. Could she lose her job? Am I being selfish? Honey, you have to put him back. You need to leave soon. At first, I ignored her. She had always been gentle and kind, But glancing up at her, I felt her fear. She was risking it all to give me this gift of holding my precious boy. I know, I know, I whimpered, hugging Jamie close to me, kissing his velvety head. I wish I could take him with me right now. Deli's eyes widened. No, no, don't say that. And don't be thinking that. This is for the best. You know that, Laura. Reluctantly, I got up, but quickly sank back in the rocker. Deli, I can't leave him. A wretched, wretched, raw sob burst from my core. Jamie's eyes fluttered open for a second and then closed again. She rose trying to take him from me. I held on tight. Not yet, please. I could walk out the door with him. What would happen if I did? Where could I go? Would they send the police? I'm his real mama, no matter what. My eyes pleaded with Delly, and her sad eyes pleaded back. I know, honey, I know, but you must leave. I don't think this was a good idea. I clung to Jamie, studying his face, and then walked him back, robot-like, to his bassinet. My lips lingered on his sweet head, and I squeezed him one last time. He squirmed as I laid him down. This is your son, my conscience screamed at me. Delly peered nervously between the window blinds and mentioned for me to hurry. I love you, Jamie. I'm so sorry. Please don't forget your mama loves you, I whispered, paralyzed at his bassinet and willing myself once again to memorize my infant son's soft features. My eyes (coughs) flickered up to the tiny cardboard birth card on the bassinet. I peeled it off and stuffed it in my pocket. Laying my hand across his tiny body, I closed my eyes, praying that God would watch over my baby and silently begging Jamie to forgive me. Then I turned and walked away without looking back. My body rolled into itself, and I stopped at the door and reached for Delly's smooth, well-worn hand, taking it in mine. I had never held her hand, and now I held it for dear life. You've been so good to me. I will never forget you, Delly. Delly smiled shyly and said, you're a good girl, Laura. Your little Jamie's gonna be fine. Almighty Jesus is watching over both of you. Don't you forget that. You've got to have faith in the Lord God. You go now, girl. Pray for your boy, but try to go on with your life, honey. My vision blurring, I squared my shoulders and walked quickly down the hall, through the lobby, out the front door. In my heart, I knew I would never come back here. I was leaving my firstborn son for the second time, and I would regret this for the rest of my life. Wow.
0: <laughs> Thank you. Is that still hard to read?
2: Well, I practiced a few times. St. <laughs> mm-hmm. Jean had to listen to it over and over. The it was hard to write. Yeah.
0: I think about the fact that you took that card, it almost seems so uncharacteristic of the little girl that we got to meet, who was so polite and wanted to be a good girl. What do you think happened that caused you to make that choice? I think
2: when I saw it, I remember they, all the babies had those on their little bassinets. And I saw it and I thought, this is mine. And I took it and I shoved it in my jeans pocket and I kept it there till I got home and I put it in a little brown box and put it in my closet to hide it. I kept that for 50 years in the brown box. And I took it out on holidays, privately. I took it out on his birthday. I was so glad I had that little card. That little card was all I had that I, sometimes as the years went by, I would look at it and think, it really happened. That's how it, surreal it was. Mm. But um, yeah, that little card was my, my son to me. You gave that card away I gave it. Later. I gave it to my son our first Christmas. I was trying to think of something sentimental to give him and Gene said, give him the card. And I said, no, that's my card. <laughs> <laughs> he said, but you have him now. <laughs> so of course, I always tell Gene no at first, but I always give in and because he, he has, you know, some good ideas. And the more I thought about it, I thought, I, this, is, this is the most special thing I can give him. And I put it in a memory box. He loved it. He absolutely loved it. We're running out of time. Everyone
0: needs to read the book. So you take this journey and we'll have lots of room for questions. The very end of the book wasn't supposed to be written. Right.
2: can you take us to the epilogue sure Um, last year at this time I couldn't have taken you to it but I'm much stronger now Um, when I ended the book I had to end it somewhere because I couldn't keep writing you know (laughs) then the next year in the next year so I ended it after our first year together and it has like a almost a fairy tale ending it was so happy and everyone was so it was almost unbelievable, really. <laughs> and uh, little did I know I was gonna have to change it from being such a happy story. But um, after my son took his life, I didn't think I was gonna publish the book because I thought I can't. It's, it's not the way it really was.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And uh, I even called the publisher, for Corner and told her I can't do this. And she was so kind, she said just, she totally understood, but she said just, we'll just keep it in the queue. You just do what you need to do. And about four months later, she sent me some uh, photos, uh, graphics of different cover ideas. And she said, <laughs> don't look at these now. if You don't want to, it's okay, I understand. But just in case there comes a time you feel ready to look at them, look at them. So I looked at them. And the last one was the one with the birth card.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And I thought, you know what? I am gonna publish this book. He loved the book. I, I want to tell my story, but I didn't do an epilogue till probably about four months later, I was talking to Julie Maloney. She's an author that I'd met years ago. And she said, oh, and how's he doing now? How's your son doing now? Mm-hmm. And I realized, everyone's gonna ask me that question. Mm-hmm. And it was probably one of the hardest things I've ever written, and I wrote it quickly. Like when you pull a Band-Aid off real fast. Mm. And I, put, I just put my heart into it and just wrote it, just so that it tied up the story and made it the truth. Mm. So that's, that's, um, that's how that epilogue got in there.
0: I'm so sorry it did.
2: Thank you. I, it, it has been hard, but I have you know, I'm so thankful we had four and a half years and I got to know so many wonderful things about my son. And also I have three beautiful grandchildren that I would never have known about if I hadn't reunited with my son. So um, I've reached that point now that I look at the beauty of that reunion and it's, it's worth every moment. Mm. Do you have any advice for
0: people looking to tell their story? This was a difficult story to tell in many ways because it involved shame and you know, really going deep into your own secrets,
2: right? Yes. Um, this story was very painful to tell and I just told somebody the other day, writing your own secrets or telling your own secret is difficult enough. But Telling your family secrets Mm -hmm. is excruciating, especially when some of them are still alive. (laughs) And um, all families have secrets, as we know. And all families react differently when somebody breaks the mold, speaks of the secret. But it's one of the healthiest things I've ever done. And it has given me a different, um, it's given me a different feeling about what happened. I forgave myself and I forgave everyone. The more I wrote about what happened, the more I forgave them and the more I understood them. And I realized how hard that was on my parents. They were not bad people, but that was what society dictated. And they went right along with it. And they weren't strong enough to bucket, which is fine. And it all worked out the way it did. My son had a wonderful life in many, many ways that I could not have given him. But at the same time, I will constantly tell people, talk about it, Even if you just write about it, you're gonna feel so much better. And you're not alone because we all have secrets and we all have things that we think, I'm not worthy because of this or that. And we are, Mm -hmm. we're all worthy. And just, you forgive yourself when you write about it. Thank you so much, Laura. You're welcome.
0: (laughs) We're gonna open it up for questions and I'm going to ask you to speak loudly and then I'll repeat the question for our recording. Did someone have a a question in the back? You answered it. I just love the story of the cover. Oh, we answered it. Okay. Okay. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Hi, Carolyn. (laughs) So many beautiful faces that we haven't seen in so long. Yes? How did you come up with the title?
2: How did you come up with the title that's interesting um i was in reading critique with the righteous sisters and uh tracy said what are your working titles and we're all sitting around the table and um, mine had been finding jamie finding myself and then i changed it to finding jamie and then and in fact when i did my website you told me i needed a a different title i remember you telling me that because you know there was more to this story so i worked with a few titles and then while I was writing, I realized I was told over and over again, you're going to forget this ever happened. Hmm. I was told by my parents, I was t- which blows my mind now, I was told by the minister. I was told by the, the home. Every, all the staff there constantly <coughs> told all of us, you're going to go on with your life and forget this ever happened. So out of the clear blue, I said, you'll forget this ever happened. Oh my God. <laughs> that should be the title because the whole book revolves around forgetting which you never forget.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So that's how that happened.
0: That was a great question. And as I was reading it, I was thinking to myself, damn, what a good title. Because it keeps coming up over and it over does, again. It does, it does. You yeah. know, it really captures the whole spirit of that time and the, this silly idea that you'll forget something like that. Yeah, you mm-hmm. never forget. Incredible. Yeah, great title. Great question. Thank you. Anyone else? Tracy?
2: Like Jennifer, you were the first birth mother I ever met as an adoptee. I thought they were unicorns. So, <laughs> how do you feel, kind of as a representative for so many of us that didn't ever meet our birth mothers? How do you feel about the book and that representation? Let me
0: repeat the question. So, as a birth mother, how do you. I'm going to give it to you.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you were. For many of us, you're the first birth mother we ever met. It's kind of like a unicorn, so do you feel a responsibility about that or are you open to talk to people about that? I know mm, good that's question. one of the things that a lot of us didn't even know what our mothers went through.
2: You know what? This is, this is the truth. When I first started thinking about telling this story, I had not met hardly any birth mothers. And I did reunite with some of the ones I was in the home with because there's a secret Facebook page for the alumni of this home. And it was very invaluable for writing my book because I'd have a question and I'd I'd write something like, do you remember such and such? Because I can't, did it really happen that way? And I'd get all these responses because there's lots of us. And they would say, yes, that's exactly what happened. Or, yeah, so and so, you're right, that old man, da, 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 da. And I think, oh, my God, thank God my memory is not completely gone, you know. But um, I never went past that little group. Well, then, after writing the book, I've been connected to all these different birth mother groups, and they're all over the country. Hmm. And they're just amazing. These women, they're, they're some of the strongest women I've ever known in my life. Most of them are my age, maybe a little bit younger in some cases, or older. Because, you know, after things changed, there weren't that many of us you know with this big secret after the 70s but um yeah i i love talking to anybody and actually adoptees have been which jennifer told me when she was helping me with my website she said i think your audience is going to be adoptees and i said huh no why would they want to read about what happened to me and she goes because they want to know what happened with their mothers And sure enough, I have had so many adoptees reach out to me in email, talk to me um, on Zoom meetings. I've been on panels as a birth mother. Uh, I did a Mother's Day thing as a birth mother. And it's just been like a a new um, something, a passion to help these people understand. And I had to write an article just recently about if What would you say to birth mothers who still are afraid of meeting their children? And although I'm not an expert, I never pretend to be, I still am an experienced (laughs) old woman. (laughs) So I've been through a lot. (laughs) And I think they like hearing, you know, some things about what we went through. They had no idea. I think that's one of the most
0: beautiful parts of the book is we assume that if a mother gives up her child. She obviously didn't want that child, right? Right. This is a misconception. In so many cases, that's not true. And you brought that to life for the reader. Yeah. You know, young, young Laura, young teenage Laura, <laughs> no. distraught. And it felt good to read that as a child who is missing, you know, a genetic parent and wondering, why didn't
2: they want me? I never met more than maybe one or two women that whole time I was at the home for five months who did, and they, you've got to remember, most of us are teenagers. There were some older ones, though, actually, but none of us wanted to leave our babies. Mm. And none of us felt like, oh, this is a good thing. We felt like criminals who had done a bad thing. And this was what had to be, happen. And we were going home to parents that didn't want these children or to, you know, some of them actually married the same men and had more children later on. I don't, you know, it's just crazy. Mm. But none of us were happy about it. You never want to lose a child, Yeah. no matter what your decision ends up being.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah.
0: Are there any other questions? I think we have time for maybe a couple more we're almost, we're almost ready to, to end tonight. Yes. Do
1: you think it'll be easier, well, quicker to write a second book?
2: <laughs> will it be will it be
0: quicker to write a second book Laura? Yeah,
2: Kathleen <laughs>
0: <laughs> again I'm going
2: to be 73 <laughs> in two weeks maybe by the time I'm eight, no. I make no I think that um, I'm kind of past the fear of you know thinking I'm because at first I was thinking I'm so old how can I keep doing this but now I'm thinking hey I know women that are older than me and they're doing a beautiful job so who knows but um <laughs> i think it would be faster because i know a lot of things i didn't know this time around and i would listen and not fight
1: mm. the editor
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> advice don't fight your editors <laughs> i have a client whose debut book has came out of last week and she is 89.
2: I know and she's here. It's never too
0: late to tell your story. (laughs) I think we're ready to sign some books. Thank you everyone so much. Hey folks this is Jennifer and as you know the premise is the official podcast of the San Diego Writers Festival, which by the way, is happening this October, October eighth in fact twenty twenty two it's going live
1: to be... and in person, yeah,
0: live and in person. I'm really, really excited we um we have so many exciting things happening, so many exciting speakers. They're coming in from all over and we want you to be there. So Coronado Public Library, the fourth annual San Diego Writers Festival.
1: SanDiegoWritersFestival.com.
0: You can subscribe to learn more about our programming and get on the list or win free books and all kinds of cool stuff happening. So
1: SanDiegoWritersFestival.com.
0: <laughs>